Thinking aloud. Conversations on the leading edge of knowledge and discovery with psychologist Jeffrey Mishlove. Hello, I'm Jeffrey Mishlove. Today we'll be looking at the power of the near-death experience. With me is Elizabeth G. Crone. She is co-author with Professor Jeffrey Kripal of a new book called Changed in a Flash, One Woman's Near-Death Experience and Why a Scholar Thinks It Empowers Us All. This is part one of a two-part series because tomorrow I will be interviewing Jeffrey Kripal, her co-author. So you'll get to hear her story from two different perspectives. This interview with Elizabeth as she tells about her own experience of being struck by lightning was conducted on the Internet. So now I'll switch over to the Internet channel. Welcome, Elizabeth. It's a pleasure to be with you uh, You've written a fascinating story about how your life was changed in a flash, in an instant. And uh, let's begin by talking about what your life was like before you had this experience of being struck by lightning in the parking lot of uh, your synagogue. Okay. Well, my life before the lightning strike was a very uh, conventional uh, what what I used to call normal life. Um, I, I have a new normal now, but my life then was very conventional. I was raised in a family with two sisters and a mom that stayed home with us, and, and our dad um, was a dentist, and just very, you know, everything was straight down the middle of the road. No, mm-hmm. Nothing ever veered off into the into the woods. And, and you, go ahead. You got married and had children. I got married very young and uh, had two children uh, quickly. And and I was raising them the same way I had been raised. Mm-hmm. And so, my husband at the time was a, a CPA, very conventional business, you know. Yeah. So there was no, I presume, no hint of mysticism or psychic functioning or <laughs> otherworldly <Absolutely>. experiences? <laughs> no, absolutely not. And in fact, if there had been, I would have laughed at it. Mm-hmm. I would have laughed it off. I, I, I would never have made fun of people to their faces, but... Privately, I would have laughed at them. I would have thought they're they're crazy. They're what mm-hmm. are they talking about? Mm-hmm. Uh, and you grew up in, I suppose it's fair to say, a similar uh, religious environment that I did, which is uh, a Jewish, uh, essentially center of America form of Judaism, in in which, at least in my experience, the the Jewish community people in my family, they were trying to fit in, trying to conform, trying to be good Americans, primarily. Exactly. Exactly. Yes. My uh, one set of my grandparents immigrated here. Um, the other set of grandparents were born in America. And we we considered ourselves American first, Jewish second, mm-hmm. I guess. And and we were reformed Jews. So I 
I, I like to call it Judaism light. Yeah. You know, we, we were not very observant. Um, and, and religion did not play a big role in our lives. But I gather the, the primary function of uh, the synagogue that you belonged to your whole life was a, a sort of a community gathering for social purposes. Exactly. That's exactly what it was. Uh, you also described your thinking at that time as being black and white. Yes. And that was more of a personality trait, I think, than it was uh, uh, how I was raised or the synagogue or anything like that. It was just, I had always been um, a, a very rigid thinker. Mm-hmm. And to me, everything was right or wrong, black or white, alive or dead. Mm-hmm. You know, there there was no middle ground. There was no gray. There was no room, no wiggle room for anything. Mm-hmm. I, I, in my mind, everything was one way or the other, period. I, um, know that you've also mentioned that in your childhood you had experienced sexual abuse. I had. Uh, starting when I was six years old, um, my, my father was very active in um, an organization called the Lions Club. It's a, a you know, service organization. Sure. And he was actually very high up in the organization and my parents had to go to these meetings uh, sometimes four nights a week. And it was just very convenient to have uh, this, this boy babysit us because he was a neighbor and he was always available. And so he babysat quite a bit. And starting when I was six, um, he, he was 12 at the time and um, he began abusing me immediately the first time he babysat. And, um, and it went on until he left for college at 18 and I was 12 when it mm-hmm. stopped. As I recall, you mentioned in your book that today this individual is a registered sex offender. Yes, he is, fortunately. <laughs> I, I assume yes. not because you press charges. No, um, I was terrified. I, he had told me that if I told anyone what he was doing, what he was doing to me, he would do it to my sisters. And I believed him. And he also threatened me by, um, holding my head underwater, um, and not letting me up to breathe. And one time I really thought I was going to have to take a breath underwater. And I thought that was it. And he pulled me up by the hair and he said, if you ever tell anyone, I'm going to hold you under five seconds longer. And to this day, mm-hmm. I can't swim. I, I still have a terrible mm-hmm. fear of the water. Mm-hmm. I love being on the water in a boat, which is really strange, but I don't like being in the water. You also write about how as a result of this sexual abuse that went on for many years, you learned how to sort of leave your body while it was going on so as to avoid having to experience anything. Well, I had to. It was a survival technique for me. Mm-hmm. And I know that psychiatrists would say I dissociated. Uh, you call it what you will, mm-hmm. I, whatever. Um, I consider it to be rehearsals 
for when I would have to leave my body after being struck by lightning to to survive. Yeah. And so what I would do is every time the abuse would begin, I would leave. I in mm-hmm. my mind, I was walking on the beach. Mm-hmm. And I would walk on the beach until it was over and then I would come back. So when I was struck by lightning, I immediately knew how to leave. I didn't have to lie there and take that pain and and I left. And th- and this went on from you were did you say from the ages of 6 until about 12? Correct. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So you grew up, you got married, you had children and you were very close to your grandparents. Very close to my grandparents. Yes. Um they they both both sets of grandparents lived within a couple of miles of us mm-hmm. and we saw them all the time and I was just very close to them. In fact, when I was in elementary school, um, one of my grandmothers, I would come home from school and I would immediately go call her mm-hmm. and uh, she would ask me how my day was. And, you know, my mom did too, but I was just extremely close to my, especially my grandmother's um, in one way, but then also one of my grandfathers, mm-hmm. my mom's dad. Your maternal grandfather. Yes. Who who comes to play an important role in the ensuing story. He so does. I, I guess we've kind of set the stage at this point. Well, at no, we should talk about your grandfather died. He did. He died. Um, he was 90 years old. Mm-hmm. And he died while I was out of town with my husband and my kids. We were visiting my in-laws in Memphis when he died. Mm-hmm. And I was devastated. I was, it wasn't unexpected. He had been sick, Mm -hmm. but I was just devastated. It wasn't normal grieving. I've lost people since then. And now I know what grief feels like normally. And that was not normal. So you were deeply distraught over the death of your grandfather Mm-hmm. And involved in the Jewish uh, community and the Reform Synagogue. And then a year after his death, there would be a, a Sabbath service in which your grandfather would be remembered as what the Jewish people call the art site. Correct. Meaning and the one year anniversary of somebody's death. Correct. And so, um, they, they were going to read his name at services that Shabbat. And I, of course, was going to go to services. And my husband was out of town on business that week. And so I took my boys and headed off to services. And that's that was the, the fateful day. Now, I think it's intriguing that you had bought yourself a, a new outfit to wear for that occasion. And, and that, like your personality, the outfit was black and white. It, very intriguing. It, I, most of the clothes that I used to wear were black and white. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
oddly enough. Um, I still do sometimes, but not like I used to. I'm going to show the photograph because I think it's very striking, uh, from, from your book. Uh, so there, there you are with your two sons and you're about to go to an event which would be very meaningful to you emotionally to commemorate the uh, anniversary of your grandfather's death. Right, right. And I know you can see in the picture that I'm wearing a black and white outfit, but what you can't see are the shoes. <laughs> and I wish today, I wish that I had a picture of those shoes because honestly, they were the most beautiful shoes I have ever owned in my life. <laughs> and uh, they also were black and white. And um, it was it was the first thing I noticed. Well, that's later in the story, but uh-huh. the the shoes were were a big deal to me. Mm-hmm. Now, very few people, I suppose, less than one in a million, uh, get struck by lightning, and that happened to you. So, if you could just describe uh, wh- how that occurred, I think that would be useful. So, we had pulled into the parking lot of the synagogue, and we were running a few minutes late because I had insisted on stopping to take a picture of us before Mm -hmm. we left the house. The very picture we showed. Yes. And at the time, I had no idea why I was insisting that we take this picture. I I knew we were running late, but I was extremely insistent. Now I know, of course, that I needed that picture. It was the last picture of the old me. Mm -hmm. And I don't, I don't know that other people can see it necessarily, but when I look at that picture, I see a completely different person. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we pulled into the parking lot, and it had been a beautiful day, all day. And as soon as I turned into the lot, there was this cloud, this black thunderhead that just came out of nowhere. And it felt like it was right over our car. And I parked, and there were not other people in the parking lot because services had already begun. And I didn't want to sit in the car and and wait for the storm to pass because I didn't want to miss the reading of my grandfather's name. So I told my four-year-old son, Jeremy, to get out of the car and to run to the awning over the door and to wait for us there. And I watched him. He did it. He got there fine. And he he was watching us. He was watching me and his brother now. I climbed over the seat in the car. Um, <laughs> I was quite a few pounds lighter than I am now, and I could climb over the seat. I climbed over the seat in the car and got my two-year-old, Andy, out of his car seat and got my umbrella and opened the car door, and it was it was a furious storm. And I knew that if I tried to carry Andy and hold the umbrella, it wasn't going to work. That Mm -hmm. it was windy and we were both going to get soaked. So I decided to put him down, let him walk. I would hold his hand and hold the umbrella with my left hand. And I did. And I pulled the umbrella down really close over my head. So my hand was very high up on the shaft of the umbrella. And which means that it was not holding on to the wooden handle. It was holding on to the metal shaft. Mm -hmm. And 
we took a few steps and I felt something. It was like, it was like a static electricity. It, it was kind of a, a crinkling sound and feel. I, I don't know how else to describe it. Um, and it felt all of a sudden the air felt cooler. It, it was almost like a, a cool breeze blew through. And I looked at my hand holding the umbrella and I thought, this is a really bad idea. <laughs> what was I thinking? I, I mean, I, I was only 28 years old at the time, but I wasn't stupid. Mm-hmm. And here I had done something really, really stupid. And I'm looking at my hand and I realized that my wedding ring was touching the metal shaft of the umbrella. And all I could think was let go, just let go, let go of the umbrella because that, that static electricity was making me very nervous. And before I could let go of the umbrella, there was a bolt of lightning and a tiny little tine, a very, very tiny tine touched the tip of the umbrella and it didn't knock me out. But what it did was paralyze my arm and my hand. And I could not let go of the umbrella. It, it was frozen there. Mm-hmm. And then uh, a larger bolt hit the top of the umbrella, and that's what knocked me out or, yeah. or killed me, basically. And uh, it also, uh, well, Andy started screaming. And when I say screaming, it's screaming I've never heard since. Um he had both of his hands up against his ears. It was very loud. Um, I didn't know at the time it had burst his eardrums, and he was in a lot of pain. And I also didn't know it had burst my eardrums, and it didn't really matter at that point. Um, Jeremy had seen what had happened, and he was also screaming, and he ran back out toward us. And I remember thinking, why is he doing that? He needs to stay where he is. We're coming to him. And he ran over to us and he took his brother by the hand and started dragging him toward the building, which I thought was really strange. But I, I thought I was following them into the building and we got to the door and Jeremy opened the door and the three of us went inside or so I thought. And there was a man there in the lobby who was walking back towards services from the restroom. And both boys were screaming. He came over and he was trying to figure out what was going on, why they were screaming. I did not understand why he was ignoring me. I was standing right there. And then it dawned on me that I did not have my umbrella. And it had been a new umbrella. So I looked back out the window in the door and I saw the umbrella and it was smoking and it was like a skeleton of an umbrella and it was smoking. And I kind of looked to the right about 20 feet and there was just this heap on the, on the pavement. And it was me. I was looking at me And I saw that the soles of my gorgeous new shoes had been blown off and my feet were burned and were sticking out of the bottom of the shoes. 
and I was upset about the shoes. So I looked down where I was in the lobby and saw that my shoes were fine. They were perfect. They were on my feet. They were perfect. I, the, the thing was, my feet weren't touching the ground. I was hovering a couple of inches off the ground. And, and you talk about being disoriented. That There it is mm-hmm. right there. That's very disorienting, especially for someone like me who I never would have believed this before. And yet here it was, uh, something strange was happening that I couldn't grasp. And the man that was trying to help my kids had run into the back of the sanctuary where services were going on. And he interrupted services and said that we needed a doctor. And this, this congregation is uh, about a block from the enormous Texas medical center. And so there were, a lot of doctors there Mm -hmm. and about 40 men got up and ran toward the back when he asked for help. And I figured, okay, I know my parents are here. Uh, The rest of my family is here for the the yard site. And I'm going to just go back out and, and try and figure out what's going on. So I floated back out to where my body lay there on the concrete in a heap And I was looking down at myself and I was thinking, I was like willing myself to get up. I just get up, get up. You're, you're ruining that suit. Look, everything is turning gray. Nothing was black and white anymore. It was all gray. I was lying in a grease puddle and literally everything was gray. Um, and I realized how wrong I had been. That everything is not black and white. In fact, nothing is black and white. Um, you know, all of a sudden, everything that I had thought became nuanced. Everything, and it was very sudden. It's not like I gradually learned this. Uh, it was just an instant understanding. And then I thought, okay, you know how to do this. You can leave. And I left. I, I decided I'm not going to lie here. And it, it looks like those are burns on my feet. And I don't want to know what it feels like. And, and I'm going to go. So I did. I left. The way you had done when you were being sexually abused. Exactly. Like, like exactly. your thought was maybe you'll go to the beach. Uh, well, <laughs> Over the course of years between the sexual abuse and the lightning strike, I had gotten very into gardens. Mm. And um, I still loved beaches, and I still do, but I also love gardens. Mm-hmm. And uh, there are very few things that bring me more peace than being in a well-manicured garden. <laughs> so... I, I saw this, uh, glow over to my right and up a little. And it wasn't a round glow. It wasn't a ball. It was more like just a glow hmm. in the sky. And it was kind of moving. And I knew that it wanted me to follow it. 
so I did. I left. I followed it. And it led me to this garden. Um, and, and I use that term very loosely because it's not like a garden here on earth. I've seen a lot of gardens. I've, I've traveled pretty, pretty extensively and everywhere we go, I seek out gardens, but this was not like anything I've seen here. Mm -hmm. And a voice told me to sit. There was a bench um, and even the bench wasn't, it wasn't like a regular garden bench. It was, it was this hand carved ornate scroll work bench. This voice told me to sit on the bench and the voice was that of my grandfather mm-hmm. whose yard site I had been at services to commemorate. And he has had a very distinctive voice. He was French and um, had a heavy French accent, and there's no mistaking his voice. And so I sat. I mean, if my dead grandfather is going to tell me to sit down, I'm going to sit down. So I did. And as soon as I sat on this bench, it, it morphed. It, like, conformed to whatever my body was then, if I even had a body. It it just became the most perfect place to be. Hmm. Um, I sat, and he sat next to me, and I was... I was overcome by this feeling of unconditional love that is, I really struggle to describe this because the words just don't exist. I, I know what unconditional love is. I have children. I, I know what, what it is, but this was much more intense and different. It, it was a different kind of unconditional love. It was stronger. It was, uh, it was indescribable. I, I, uh, sometimes I think maybe we're not supposed to be able to describe it mm. because the words don't exist. The vocabulary isn't here. Um, that feeling was all around. It was around me. It was in me. It was, it was me. Uh, and I, I was overwhelmed by that and by the, what I was seeing. It was, I mean, it was literally a visual feast, this mm-hmm. garden. Uh, the colors were not colors that exist here. I, I now, believe they were colors from another spectrum, mm-hmm. another color spectrum that we don't have here. Um, and by here, I mean this dimension, this mm-hmm. where we are now. Normal physical reality here on Earth. Exactly, yeah. exactly. <laughs> and so it, it was what I was seeing. It was what I was smelling. I mean, my senses were like hyperactivated. Um, the, the scents in the air, I mean, they were 
heavenly, excuse the the expression. Um, And there was music. And the music was otherworldly. It it wasn't, um, the music was not being made by any musical instrument I've ever heard here. Um, and I understood that the voice that had spoken to me, that was my grandfather's voice, was not, in fact, my grandfather. I, I do believe it was God. Um, and I do believe he was using my grandfather's voice to put me at ease, to keep me from being frightened. Um, and, and I believe that's what the whole entire setup was designed to do, was to put me at ease and keep me from being frightened. Because where I was, that that garden, that that is my heaven. That mm-hmm. is my vision of heaven. And there were other people there that I saw in the distance. And I understood I, I just understood that they were there with me, but they were not seeing what I was seeing. They were seeing whatever their version of heaven is. And so we proceeded to have a conversation for two weeks. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I knew I was there for two weeks because, again, and I, I know this sounds ridiculous, but I just knew how to do this. I I understood while I was there how how time works, and I understood that time is not linear. I I completely got it while I was there. There and I didn't have to learn it. I I knew it. Mm-hmm. It was an instant download of of knowledge and information, and I I knew that there there were three. I guess they were moons or some kind of bodies in the sky. I guess that's the sky. I don't know. Um, and the way they were moving in relation to each other, I understood the passage of time and how it worked. And I think that once I was back here, I had to remember it in linear terms. I had to, I had to understand time as linear or I couldn't decipher what it was I had learned there. Mm-hmm. So back here, my understanding is it was two weeks. While I was there, it was it was just all at once. Uh, time was just everything was happening at once. The past, the present, the future, it was just all there. It wasn't when I was, it was where I was. I know that's very confusing. And, and again, I've never studied time and space. I've, you know, my background is in uh, business administration, mm-hmm. not physics. So I don't know. I don't understand it here. But in, in actual Earth time, as I understand it, it was really just a couple of minutes before y- you were resuscitated. That's correct. But, but it's mm-hmm. also impossible to get the amount of information that I got there mm-hmm. in a couple of minutes. Not even possible. So it, it, it was just a very strange feeling. Mm-hmm. Um, he, I, 
some of the information I got, well, a lot of it was personal about my family and, and my kids. Um, he told me that I could stay there if I wanted to. And if I stayed, I would follow this, this path. There was a path through the garden that led to a mountain range and that, that glow had moved beyond the mountains and that I would go beyond the mountains if I chose to stay. And if I chose to go back, I could go back and he would help me back into my body. And I didn't want to go back. I, I mean, why would I ever want to leave this place? I, it was perfection. Um, and so I asked questions and he told me that if, if I did come back, that I would be facing a divorce in the future, which I, I was almost argumentative because I, I didn't believe it. I, w- I was in a, a good marriage. My husband and I were, were happy with our little growing family. And um, he said, right, but that was the old you. When you go back, you're not going to be the same person. You, you've changed. And you will not be the person that your husband married. And I thought, oh, maybe, you know, it's, I don't know. I, I didn't really buy that. But I did think if, if there was any possibility of that happening, um, that I needed to come back because I wanted to be the one to raise my kids. Also, if I didn't come back, I wouldn't be the one raising my kids. He also told me that if I chose to come back, I would be having a third child, uh, a daughter after my two boys, and that she had already selected me and her dad as her parents. Um, and again, it was just an instant understanding for me about reincarnation. I, I had never even thought about it before. And had I thought about it, I would have just laughed it off as a ridiculous pie in the sky hope. But uh, here I, I understood it and I understood it to be the way it really is, that it happens. And he said, but don't let that color your decision too much because if, if you decide to stay here, She'll just choose someone else as her parents. She has already decided she's coming back and she'll just choose someone else. Well, I wasn't about to let that happen. <laughs> so I said, okay, I'll, I'll go back. And, um, he, he said, I'm going to have to help you into your body. And, uh, there's going to be a lot of pain, physical pain. Um, I'm, going to have to hug you very tightly, bone crushingly tight. It will be painful because I have to squeeze your expanded soul back into your little body. And you will also have burns that you'll be dealing with for the next few months. And I said, okay, okay, let's do this. And so he did. He squeezed me in it. It was painful. It, it just felt like all my bones were breaking. And, um, and then I opened my eyes and I was still lying in the rain and people were just coming out to help me. 
when I woke up. And it seemed as if two weeks had passed. I can promise you two weeks passed. <laughs> yes. Uh-huh. Yes. Yes. I, I, I don't think there's anything anyone could say that would convince me otherwise. Mm-hmm. And it would, it would suggest because you were basically sitting on that bench the whole time. I was having mm-hmm. this ongoing conversation with, mm-hmm. with God, basically, um, giving me all kinds of information. He gave me information that shouldn't have, shouldn't have mattered. He told me who was going to be elected president next. And this and, was in 1988, incidentally. Yes. It was. It was September 2nd, 1988. He told me that George H.W. Bush would be elected president. And and I remember thinking, I don't care. Why are you telling me this? He told me that the Cincinnati Bengals were going to play in the Super Bowl. Again, I didn't care. I had never even watched a Super Bowl. I, I didn't care. Mm-hmm. Um, but he told me that he gave me that information so that when it happened, it would trigger a memory of being in the garden and it would bring all of this information back up to the surface for me. Mm-hmm. And it worked. It worked like a charm. Mm-hmm. When George Bush was elected, I, it was like, oh my gosh, it, it was like somebody flipped a switch and suddenly I had all this information again that I hadn't realized I had, I don't think I ever forgot it, mm-hmm. uh, but I hadn't thought about it. Because when, when you found yourself awake in the parking lot and, and your feet were burned and your body was racked with pain, uh, mm-hmm. those were your immediate concerns at the time. Exactly. Exactly. And then after I got past that, my concerns were, Jeremy and Andy, mm-hmm. and where are they, and are they okay? Yeah. And I wasn't thinking about where I had been and the fact that reincarnation is a real thing that happens, and, mm-hmm. you know. Well, I think it's fascinating that uh, they're in the synagogue amongst the 40 doctors who rushed out when they heard there was an emergency. One of them was actually a specialist in lightning strikes. Correct. He was actually, uh, well, electrocution. He, mm-hmm. he, um, the, the, one of the big hospitals here had him on staff as a specialist in electrocution. He had been a whitewater rafter. Um, that was a hobby that he enjoyed. And he had seen people get struck by lightning a few times and, there he was. He was right there. I mean, had they taken me to the hospital, the hospital just would have called him out of services to go to the hospital, but he was already there. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Coincidence? I, I don't think so. <laughs> well, it was fortunate. Uh, it was. Mm-hmm. And But the intriguing fact is there you are, you know, maybe five minutes after having been struck by lightning and you understood yourself to be, uh, or maybe the understanding came gradually that you were a completely different person. I think I, I think I understood that pretty immediately. I didn't know how I was different, 
I just knew something had happened that had changed me in a big way. Um, and I have to say that while my husband and I did get divorced, it, it wasn't for another nine years. Mm -hmm. It's not like it was an immediate thing. Um, it, it, but it was a gradual, I guess I gradually allowed these changes to show themselves. Mm -hmm. And, um, he wasn't changing. I mean, why would he? he yeah. There was no reason. And it just, it just got to be too much. Well, and, and also I understand that you did have to spend a few months in bed after this experience while your feet healed. I did. They were very burned and blistered. And so I did spend a lot of time in bed and sleeping. And it was during those three months, or I guess it was about right at the three month mark. I had my first uh, precognitive nightmare. Mm. Um, and those have plagued me ever since mm -hmm. um, that I, I've tried different things to make them stop over the years. I, I do not like them. Um, you know, I'm not getting, I'm not having good dreams like lottery numbers. No, I'm having um, nightmares about plane crashes and people dying and things that I can't do anything about except sit there and watch it on the news the next day. So I, I don't like it. Um, and I've, I've come to realize that I think that these nightmares were happening to me because I wasn't doing what I was supposed to be doing with the information I had received. And until I did what I was supposed to be doing, which I didn't know what that was, uh, it, this was going to continue. Mm -hmm. And so over the years, I've tried different things to, to make it stop. Nothing worked. Uh, I'm hoping that by working with Jeff Kripal and writing this book, um, I'm hoping that this helps make them stop. Yeah. Well, in addition to these precognitive dreams of a nightmarish sort, you also began experiencing a wide variety of other uh, psychic phenomena. And, and, I did. And modes of perception. You began seeing auras. And I, I think one of the most fascinating experiences you had was the telephone conversation with your deceased grandfather. Yes, that was, that was something. Um, I, I, we, my husband and I were in bed one night. It was, you know, three 30 in the morning and this was way before cell phones. So we had a landline and it was on my side of the bed and the phone rang at three 30 and I didn't want to answer it. I knew it wasn't going to be good news. Nobody's calling you at three 30 in the morning to give you good news. So I was kind of half asleep and ignoring it. And he was pushing on me saying, get the phone, get the phone. He was wide awake, but it was on my side of the bed. So I said, okay. So I picked up the phone. I said, hello. And both of us were sitting up in bed. 
I said hello, and it was my grandfather with the French accent and all. And this time it actually was my grandfather. It was not God. It was my grandfather. And we had a conversation. And and the entire time I was talking to him, my husband was saying, who is it? Who is that? Who are you talking to? And I kept shushing him and ignoring him because what am I going to say? You know, it's, it's my dead grandfather. I, I didn't know what to say to him. So I was ignoring him, having this conversation with my grandfather. Um, I was newly pregnant at the time with my third child, my daughter. Mm-hmm. Um, and he was calling because he had been trying to reach my mom, his daughter, uh, to give her some information that she needed. And he was, I, I said, well, why don't you call her? <laughs> I can give you her phone number. He said, no, I've tried to reach her, but she can't hear me. And ever since you were struck by lightning, you can hear me. So please call her in the morning and give her this information. And I told him I would. And when we hung up, immediately the room filled with, it wasn't smoke. It looked like smoke, but it was odorless and it was just like a vapor, Um, but it was very dense. And you couldn't, the way our bed was situated, you could see straight down the hall. And we were both sitting up in bed, and at the end of the hall, I saw a red light, which was like a laser pointer light. And in that red light was love. It was that same unconditional love that I had felt in the garden. And this smoke was had filled the room and we're both sitting up in bed, but neither of us were like screaming. Oh my God, the house is on fire. Get the boys. We weren't, we weren't afraid. And as, as fast as the room filled with this smoke, it, it dissipated. And we're both sitting there. And my husband said, um, who was that on the phone? And I said, my grandfather. And he said, which one? Hmm. And I told him, and he said, "Uh okay, I'm I'm going to sleep. And I said, wait, did you see anything? And he said, what smoke? (laughs) So it was like he had seen it. He's not going to talk about it. And that was the end of it. Mm-hmm. And we never talked about it again. And that was, that was in, um, the, that was early 1990. Mm-hmm. And then the next time he ever said anything about it was in 2011 when we were, we were in Jerusalem for my, we, we had, divorced. We had both remarried. We were in Jerusalem for my son Andy's rabbinic ordination. And we were at a dinner honoring Andy. And Andy said to his dad, do you remember a phone call that mom got from her grandfather? 
and boy, my ears perked up. I was across the table and, and down a little bit, but I was honed in on that conversation. And he said, oh, yeah, I remember it. Uh, and he went on to describe it to Andy exactly as it had happened. And, you know, so for 21 years, he wouldn't even acknowledge to me that it had happened. But he saw it. Mm-hmm. He saw it. it. It wasn't my imagination. That's what happened. Yeah. And I guess it was that difference right there that inevitably led to the divorce. Correct. Mm-hmm. Yes. So you began e- experiencing other things. You could read people. You even worked uh, for a short period of time as a psychic reader, and, and quite accurately, I gather. I did. I was hoping that that would make the nightmares stop. That was one of the things I tried thinking, okay, so maybe this is what I'm supposed to be doing, and if I do this, then maybe... God will stop showing me all this bad information that I don't want. And so I tried that for a while. Um, and I was, I was accurate. I, it, it's very easy for me to sit across the table from someone and get information about them. And so I did that and, um, the nightmares did not stop, yeah. and in fact, I really didn't like doing it. I, and, I don't enjoy it. And I gather that this was not an ability you had before being struck by lightning. <laughs> no, no, it was not. It was, again, mm-hmm. I would have made fun of anyone that told me this yeah. is what they did. Mm-hmm. No, I wouldn't have believed it. But essentially, you you were gifted, or we maybe a better word is to say infused with with all of this metaphysical information about God, about heaven, about reincarnation, and uh, and about time, um, and and you've been struggling for thirty years basically to understand uh, what is the purpose, uh, how can you make best use of uh, what has occurred, right. Exactly. I, and I still am. Mm-hmm. Um, I, again, I'm hoping that by getting some of what I know out there, mm-hmm. um, that I will be relieved of some of these nightmares yeah. and no longer have to suffer through them. Mm-hmm. Um, I, what I have found just since writing this book and, and the book, was only released a couple of months ago, um, not even two months ago. And what I've found, people have already been telling me how much comfort it brings to them. It is very comforting to know that, that death is not the end. Um, it, this, this type of knowledge takes away your fear of death. And that's unbelievably empowering Mm -hmm. to not have that fear of death. um, For me has been, that is the gift. Mm -hmm. Um, What I have found that has helped other people so much. um, And mostly it's uh, people that are either facing death themselves or have recently lost someone or have lost someone years ago. Um, it's comforting to know that 
something of their essence is still here. It, it still exists. Just because a person dies is not necessarily the end of consciousness. And in fact, I think medical science is now starting to come to that same realization. Mm -hmm. uh, but it's, it's empowering and it's comforting. Mm -hmm. And I feel, I feel so much better about writing this book and getting that information out there than I ever did about doing psychic readings, mm -hmm. which I didn't enjoy and didn't get any fulfillment. Mm -hmm. And I suppose uh, your encounter with Jeffrey Kripal was also helpful. And, and I believe you worked with an Episcopalian priest as, as well <laughs> to help you process all, all that you've been through. I did. I did. When it first happened, the lightning, I tried talking to every rabbi I could find. And uh, none of them were helpful. Uh, this is not something any of them had studied uh, nor did they look into it. It just mm -hmm. was basically a little pat on my head and, oh, you'll be fine. You'll be fine. Yeah. And I was dismissed. Mm -hmm. And many times I would walk out of a rabbi's office feeling worse than I had felt when I walked in. And so in 2013, uh, there was an article in the Houston Chronicle about this Episcopalian minister uh, who had written a book on the Christian near-death experience. And so I immediately bought the book and read it, cover to cover in one sitting. And I, I believe it had his email address, or his email, uh, somehow I got his email address, mm -hmm. and I sent him an email. Mm -hmm. And I said, I really need to speak to a clergy person I had this amazing, um, I guess, religious experience, and I can't find anyone who can talk to me about it. And he wrote back, and he said, you're Jewish? I mean, that was the <laughs> entire return email. You're Jewish? And I wrote back and said, yes. And he said, can I take you lunch? <laughs> and we have since become very good friends. Mm -hmm. He was amazingly helpful to me. He was invited to speak on a panel in the Texas Medical Center um, about near-death experiences, and Jeff was also speaking mm -hmm. on that panel. Jeffrey Kripal. Yes, I'm sorry, Jeffrey Kripal. Right. Yeah. And he, and he, this minister said, well, I know this Jewish woman that had a near-death experience. We should have her on the panel also. So they invited me, and I figured... You know, I never spoke about this publicly before because I was always afraid of my children being stigmatized and, uh, you know, labeled as the kids of the crazy mother. But my kids are grown. They're all adults. They're all married with their own kids now. And so I said, yeah, I'll do it. What? I don't care anymore. So I went and spoke on this panel, and that's when I met Jeffrey Kripal. Mm -hmm. And that was 2015. And it was actually that night he said, we should write a book. <laughs> and, and I thought, okay. And I said, okay, I'm willing to put a year into this, one mm -hmm. year. He said, oh, no, if we write a book, it's going to be a three-year project. Oh. I said, I said, no, I'll give it one year. He said, no, it'll be three years. And the book was released three years to the date. 
uh, <laughs> the night we met. So. All right, so he has a little bit of precognition himself. <laughs> or experience yeah. writing books. Well, well, yes, he's written about a dozen. So. Yes, he has. <laughs> <laughs> well, Elizabeth, thank you so much for sharing this story with me. And, you know, I'll be interviewing him uh, tomorrow, as a matter of fact. So we're going to have a two-part series, and we'll be able to have his reflections, because he he feels very strongly that your experience is of value to everybody. Yes, I can't wait to hear your, your interview with him. Uh-huh. Yeah, I'm well, looking forward to it. I, I'm delighted to have been able to meet you. I think uh, your integrity and, and honesty just shines right through. You're you're not oh, in this uh, to uh, for the fame or the fortune. I can tell that. <laughs> no, there is no fame or fortune here. Unfortunately, that's that's yeah. not it. <laughs> but but you're you're speaking from your heart about real life experiences that uh, are extremely important, I think, for everybody. And and so I'm delighted to be able to share this with uh, our video audience. Thank you well, again thank you. so much. Thank you for the opportunity. I appreciate it. It's my pleasure. Mm-hmm.